0: Thanks everyone. So first of all, I just wanna express my gratitude. I'm in the synagogue building, I'm in my office and I'm the only one here today. And I feel like it's my castle. It's just an amazing feeling. And I am quite seriously, I wanna express my gratitude to everyone who contributed time, money or energy to building this beautiful synagogue we have. I'm I'm the beneficiary these days and it's it's such a haven and a beautiful place and so I am grateful every day when I come here. So I just wanted to say that. I'm really moved actually because it is a physical physical expression of of the community we've created together and I'm just really moved by it. So thank you. So let's say the blessing in honor of studying Torah. The, it's the traditional blessing that ends with the phrase La'asok B'divrei Torah. It goes like this. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshana B'mitzvotav la La'asok B'divrei Torah. We are given the mitzvah of engaging with the words of Torah. Um, uh, Did I just, uh, Rebecca Horwitz is here um, with us. Let me just see Rebecca. Uh, There, she's muted, but Rebecca is recovering from the COVID uh, virus, thank God. So when we say our healing prayer, um, I'm glad Rebecca, you're here and Uh, we're going to send all our good energy your way a nasty disease Mm -hmm. Um, okay so the Torah portion is emor emor is in Leviticus it's chapters 20 uh, 21 through 24 of Leviticus and first, some overarching comments, and then more specific until I get to the nugget that I want to explore with you today. And uh, uh, that's, that's, how I, that's how I've conceived of what uh, I'm going to share with you. Yes, Rebecca, I hope I didn't, uh, of course people didn't know. We're not like announcing things like that, and I hope it's okay For Rebecca, that I mentioned this. If I didn't, please, please forgive me. If I, if it wasn't appropriate. Um, Okay, so the Book of Leviticus is, in a way, the Book of Holiness, and we talked about this a lot last time. And holiness, this idea of creating sacred, a sacred precinct in which the divine presence can be perceived is the purpose of Leviticus. And it recapitulates, oh, thank you, yes, good. I'm glad it's okay with Rebecca and that's good. Um, And this sense of holiness in the book of Leviticus gets recapitulated in different spheres of existence. So for instance, in the the Parsha two weeks ago, um, in um, Tazria Mitzorah and in Shemini before that, we're concerned with the um, holiness of the body, the actual body, what comes out of it, what goes into it, how to keep it a sacred, how to make your body a temple, right? In the ancient metaphors, of the Torah, but we can now update those metaphors for our own understanding of what it means to treat your body as temple. Temple meaning as mikdash, as a place where the divine presence can dwell, kadosh, there's that word kadosh. And then we move from um, um, the body, the individual body, then in kadoshim, we're dealing with how to create a community where holiness can manifest, right? So another kind of nested iteration, body, self, community, holiness. And that's how I've been thinking about Leviticus because um, then we deal with also the priest's work in the mishkan, in the, holy space. So now, not just the holiness of individual and relationship, but then there's this idea of sanctifying a space where you, where God's presence can dwell. The Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting, the Mishkan, the place where the divine presence can dwell. So we're dealing with uh, holiness in body, holiness in community, how to create holiness in space. Um, and then in this chapter in MmOR. It addresses mikra-e-kodesh, holy times. So now we're looking at how do we create holy time together? How do you sanctify time? And then, of course, at the end of Leviticus, in next week's portion, we deal with sabbatical years and jubilee years where you give the earth its due as a holy space. So in other words, this... Uh, Holiness in creation, holiness in um, the entire cosmos, the whole, the earth, next week we'll read the earth, the whole earth belongs to the Lord, belongs to me, and you are residents upon it. So in other words, holiness as a feature of the cosmos in its entirety. And I just loved thinking about that and wanted to put that out to you. Holiness in self, community, in space and in time, all the the aspects of physical reality, we're asked to find ways to sanctify. And each one of those is part of the other and all intertwined. And I'd never really looked at Leviticus that way and I'm having that insight uh, myself this year, Hasidic teachings are very occupied with Nefesh, Zman, and Olam, with the holiness of self, God's presence in the world, the physical world, and God's presence in the passage of time. And so I see how the template of that is here in Leviticus. So then in this chapter 24, which I want to look at, we are occupied with um, the whole, how to, how The template for creating holiness in time. So I just wanted to give that as a framework for what this portion is. And chapter 23, did I say 24? I meant chapter 23. Um, Chapter 23 is a listing of sacred times from the Bible. Uh, Now, there are four times in the Torah in Exodus in Leviticus and once in Numbers and once in Deuteronomy where the holiday, mm, holy days are described. And they're fundamentally aligned, though there are minor differences, they're fundamentally aligned. In biblical time, all of the holy times are in a six month period, half of the year. They begin with the full moon of springtime, Nisan, which is called the first month in our paragraph. And they conclude with the full moon festival of autumn, which is Sukkot. Then in the Torah, the rest of the months from Sukkot until Passover again, it's the rainy season. I kind of imagine nobody was trying to schlep to Jerusalem during those months. It was the time to hunker down. It was the time to pray for rain because that's what we start doing in the Sidur As soon as Sukkot is over, we pray for the rainy season in the land of Israel. And um, it was an agricultural, uh, it was an entirely an agriculturally based culture. It wasn't an urban culture uh, or society. And so the festivals make this beautiful, um, the word I'm looking for is um, Uh, um, it's very balanced. It's an axis, as many of us know, between the spring equinox and Passover, and then the big, where you have a seven-day festival, and then at the fall equinox, you have an eight-day festival, which is the festival of ingathering, as you make sure you have everything and and you rejoice to have enough food stored up for the winter. And uh, then you pray for rain so that the crops will grow again for the coming year. The, um, I'll also point out, as we will explore this in a minute, that in addition to these sort of key axes across the cycle of the years, March, you know, um, spring equinox and the full moon, fall equinox and the full moon. Uh, we find that in the seventh, that the the spring month is called, Nisan is called the first month. And the seventh month is the month of Tishrei. When you say in the seventh month, you shall have um, a, a, a blow the shofar, and have a full celebration, a full holy day. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, I'm pointing that out because the other sanctification of time in the Jewish tradition is the seventh of everything. So every seven days, not seasonal, but every seven days is Shabbat. So that is, so there's two rhythms of time sanctification in traditional Judaism. There's the rhythm of the seasons and there's the rhythm of the seven-day cycle of Shabbat. And they get intertwined because the seventh month is a whole month of festival. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, and Shemini Atzeret. So it's, the seventh month is, as it were, a Sabbath month. Um, even though Rosh Hashanah becomes known as the head of the year or the new year, um, back in biblical times, it was not. It was the apex of the year, um, not the beginning of the year, if that makes sense. Um, So so those are the two cycles of sanctifying time, the seven-day cycle of Shabbat, and then the cycle of the seasons in which the seventh month is also sanctified. And then, of course, as we'll study next week, the seventh year is sanctified and the 49th year is sanctified, the 50th year. So it's all sevens that weave together to make us aware of the presence of God, the presence of the mysterious infinite creator and creation. Uh, Seven is the cycle that keeps us constantly coming back to that awareness. That's a beautiful thing, because it's that awareness that allows us to sense the holiness of creation. So in this chapter, I'm gonna now play with another word. It says, first it begins by saying, uh, on six days may work be done, and on the seventh day there's a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy day a sacred occasion you shall do no work it is a shabbat of yod that's how it be- begins and then it says in verse 4 Moadei adonai mikra kodesh these are the moadim of adonai the set times of yod hevafe mikra kodesh sacred occasions, which you shall celebrate at their mo'adam, at their appointed time. So I wanted to look at this word, mo'ed. It's a beautiful Hebrew word. Mo'ed means, literally, it, its meaning in the dictionary is set times, festivals, or times of assembly. So a mo'ed is when we all come together as a community to sanctify time, to mark a holiday, a holy day. In Hebrew, it comes from the root ya'ad, which means to appoint or designate, set apart. It comes from the root va'ad, which means a committee or an assembly or a board in modern Hebrew. Uh, the verb va'ad means to invite or convene or assemble. The root ya'ad is a purpose or a mission or an aim. So to, so this has to do with a very intentional gathering because the word edah in the Torah means a community. And the word ed is a witness or a testimony so this is all the word moed i was looking at it it's very intentional the intention of a moed a set time is for the community to gather for a specific pur- purpose and if it's a if it these are the holy times that's how it works that holidays these holy days are communal It's the community sanctifying time. And that makes me want to take a tiny excursion, something we've talked about many times, I have over the years, and makes me long to be in Israel at holy days. Because here in diaspora, we each have to like clamber through secular time in order to kind of, just carve out a little space that's our communal celebration there aren't in who you know what is Passover by yourself you, you know you have to understand this what is Shabbat on by yourself it's something but it's not its full intention behind it one of the pleasures of being in Israel a, 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 a fully Jewish um, culture that uh, was created in the last hundred years, is that it has restored this possibility of understanding what it might mean for a true communal holy time, where we don't have to fight against the current. We are in fact drawn in by the current into holy times. Ah, It's lovely, you know, it's just lovely. We live in a culture where we're drawn in willy-nilly to, holy, to both secular and uh, and religious holidays that aren't our cultures, right? That's what it means to be a minority. And so I just, um, just love when I'm in Israel for a holy day. I don't have to fight and swim against the current. I can just get on and ride it in. It's really a different experience. And I think it's one of the reasons why when uh, Jewish people who haven't been to Israel before but feel connected in some way to being Jewish are astonished and moved and mystified by this experience, Um, even if they're not religious, even if they couldn't care less. Um, uh, Because a moed is, by definition, something that a da does. It's the sacred meeting time of the community. So I wanted to frame that for you. The next thing I want to frame, and I'll keep framing, and promise I won't run out of time before I get to, before I telescope in. But it just always seems really important to restate these things. Is the sacred occasions that the Torah lists. These are the holidays that we have since the time of the Bible's um, codification and. Uh, and they are in the first month on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight you shall offer the passover offering to jhe and then celebrate the feast of Matzah, unleavened bread for seven days so that's the first ancient holiday do you want me to share it um the, uh, no let let's let me just uh, do it verbally today um uh, so Passover goes back as far as we go back, it goes back uh, to, to the beginning of what our sacred calendar is. The next thing it says is that when you enter the land and it's time to reap the first harvest, the wheat harvest that has been, and that has been growing, you take a sheaf called an omer and you lift it up to God and you wave it in gratitude and then you count off 50 days, 49 days, until you come to something called the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks, otherwise known in, Shavuot, in Hebrew as Shavuot. So since ancient times, we've had three pilgrimage festivals because you're supposed to bring the offering of your heart, of your first uh, katsir. Katsir means cutting of the wheat. Um, uh, and bake it into loaves of bread and bring it to the priest so you can offer the first fruits of your harvest to God in gratitude for um, the world feeding you, right? So that's two holy times. The third ancient holy time is the month of Tishrei. And here it says, on the first day of the seventh month, you shall observe a complete rest. A Shabbaton comes from the same word as Shabbat, a complete rest, a uh, a sacred occasion, commemorated with Trua, Trua, loud blasts, right? It's one of the name the one of the shofar calls. Tekiyah, shavarim, trua. So here we hear the word trua. Laharia means to make a loud sound. And you shall not walk, work at your occupations. This is a holy day. The first, the new moon of the seventh month. Then it says, mark on the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Yom Kippur. It shall be a sacred occasion for you. You shall practice self-denial. Initem as the Hebrew word. Uh, And you shall do no work throughout that day. Do no work whatsoever, it says. A Sabbath, Shabbat Shabbaton, a Sabbath of complete rest for you where you practice self-denial. Now, in fact, it doesn't say you should fast. The Torah doesn't describe what self-denial is at all. That's all, uh, that all comes through the oral tradition, which the rabbis then develop into what we now understand as Yom Kippur, what self-denial means. It actually doesn't say don't eat. Um, that all comes through the oral transmission because we have no idea what it means just in the plain text of the Torah. Again, most of us think of Yom Kippur as the holiest day of the year and the culmination of the holiday season. But actually Yom Kippur is actually the spiritual preparation for the holiest days of the year, which is the festival of the ingathering, the festival of Sukkot dwelling in shelters which happens on the full moon of the seventh month. So the first, the, the, you, you announce the holy month with a, with a shofar on the first day. On the 10th day, you have a day of purification and preparation. And then on the full moon, four nights later, you have the festival, which was considered in biblical times to be even more important than Passover. Um, And I've said this many times, but it is the unfortunate casualty in our American society of being during the busiest time of the year on the secular calendar. Summer's over. School has started. Goals after the summer in our work are ramping up. Who's going to take eight days off in the middle of, the end of September um, when you just had the summer vacation. So American Jews have been totally impoverished because our the secular demands on our lives have prevented us from fully celebrating Sukkot. Again, in Israel, Sukkot is school vacation. Everybody's outside. Everybody's, even if they're not religious. Um, uh, Pauline wrote, it's like, it's a time when we get ready for a rebirth that's what the days of awe are for and then we don't get to go to the delivery and and have the new birth happen so we've experienced that many of us here at the synagogue over the years we've really really dove into the joy of sitting in the sukkah and reveling in the time of harvest it is nothing like it so Um, So, it then says, on the 15th day of this seventh month, it's the Feast of Sukkot to God. And it is a sacred occasion. And on the eighth day, you have an additional sacred occasion called Shmini Atzeret, which means stopping work on the eighth day. And And it is all considered a gathering where no work is done and where you draw near to God. And that's the list. The list is Passover, Shavuot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. That's it. Those are the ancient holy days of the Jewish tradition. We know there are more holidays, right? Certainly Chanukah, but that's post biblical. The Hanukkah events happened after these texts were um, already considered to be um, completed. That didn't stop Jewish civilization from instituting new celebrations. I, how, You can't have too many holidays, uh, Purim. Purim, even though the book of Esther is included in the latter books of the Bible. Um, oh, Blaise said, I never got what it meant to be in a Jewish culture until I went to Israel in 2004. It was Sukkot and the importance of that holiday shined through. Thank you, Blaise. Um, Purim, even though the book of Esther is included in the latter books of the Bible, was not part of the biblical Set of holidays, it takes place in Persia, um, centuries, you know, at at, at a later time in Jewish history. Um, And then the fast days, such as the ninth of Av, are also historical commemorations of when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in the first century. Simchat Torah, which is a great holiday at the end of Sukkot, doesn't come into being until the Middle Ages. and then of course, there are what are called the modern Israeli High Holy Days, which we just passed, which are brand new Holy Days, as it were. It's Holocaust Remembrance Day. And then a week later, Israel's Yom Hazikaron Memorial Day. And the next day, Israel's um, Independence Day celebration. So the Jewish calendar, it's always important to point out is always evolving as the Jewish people evolve. We also know of holidays that the rabbis spoke about, something called Nicanor's day, he was a general, and other days that have disappeared. So we don't know what exactly Jews will be celebrating 500 years from now, but we do know that they'll be celebrating Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, at least, right? We know that. by this time, I doubt Hanukkah and Purim are going anywhere either. Uh, but who knows? It's a beautiful thing. We have this foundation of holy times in the Bible, which are tied to the rhythms of nature and uh, which then gain historical uh, relevance too in the way we tell the story about it. So we know that we tell the story of Passover, which was both a festival of spring and a uh, remembrance of the story of leaving slavery. We know that Shavuot is both the festival of um, uh, bringing your first fruits of the harvest and of standing at Mount Sinai and receiving the Torah. That becomes the, mytho-historical, you know, this isn't, this isn't literal history, this is, this is the, our mythic history of walking in the footsteps of our ancestors as we walk through the year. And then there's Sukkot, which has the strangest association of all. Um, so now, uh, Gwen, would you put up the text from the end of this chapter? Okay. Thank you. That's cool. Okay. Verse 39. Mark. Oops, went away. Thank you. Mark, on the 15th day, after the seventh new moon, when you have gathered in the produce of the land. So, this is the full moon of the sabbatical month. So it is really the apex of the year. You are to celebrate as pilgrimage, the pilgrimage festival of yod heh for seven days. On the first day is a Sabbath ceasing, and on the eighth day a Sabbath ceasing. And you are to take to yourself, to take yourselves on the first day, the fruit of beautiful trees, Branches of palms, boughs of thick tree foliage, and willows of the brook. Many of us are familiar with this verse. These are the elements of the lulav and etrog. Lulav means palm, willow, myrtle is interpreted as the boughs of thick tree foliage, and the fruit of beautiful trees becomes the etrog in the oral tradition. They go way, way back. You're to take these symbols of fecundity, of harvest, of um, and you are to rejoice before the presence of Yod-Heh-Vav your God for seven days. And the word rejoice, usemachtem, simcha. Right, simcha means to rejoice. Um, the reason I'm pointing that out. is this is the only holiday in this chapter where we're told to rejoice. All the others are, it's a holiday and you have to mark it and observe it. But rejoicing is the on, is only associated with Sukkot. So again, you get this sense of a year being successfully completed somehow. And uh, an opportunity to celebrate the bounty of everything. Uh, then it says, you are to celebrate it as pilgrimage. A pilgrimage festival to yod heh for seven days a year. A law for the ages throughout your generations in the seventh new moon, you are to celebrate it as a pilgrimage. This kind of word repetition is the way biblical writing works. It's, it's not being repetitive. It is being, I mean, it's being repetitive, but with a purpose. The purpose is to bring us into the sound of the language, taking us into this holy time. And then it says in verse 42, "Basukot You are to live in huts, for seven days. Sukkah is a hut, a shelter, a booth. It's a temporary structure. That's the key thing for you to know. Every native in Israel is to stay in a Sukkah. And why? In order that your generations may know that in Sukkot, I had the children of Israel stay when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Yod Hevav He, your God. Okay, so when you go to Israel or other places in the Middle East, at harvest time, ah, what did Ellen say? I want to see my. Um, oh, at the end of 2330, the I am God, your God, Ani Arunai Elohechem, is the 10th time this phrase appears in the Parsha. Thank you. Um, um OK, so when I've been in Israel in the fall, in farming territory, in especially among um, you know uh, um, Arab farmers in the Galilee, near where my brother lives, you see temporary shelters in the fields. Um, it was so that people could live in the fields, not in the towns, during the harvest time so they could get all the harvest in um, before the rains because the rains are coming. They always come around this time. And so um, uh, I think the, the sukkah was a symbol of harvest. And it becomes a symbol that we carry with us to this day where we decorate the sukkah with harvest fruits and we cover it with branches that have been harvested and and, and, she, and uh, um, uh, stalks and leftovers from the harvest. We put it over our sukkah and we dwell in the sukkah. I think it's an artifact of actually living in the field and sleeping in the sukkah. That's my own sense of the history of it. And yet here's this interest, but it also says in the Torah that we dwelt in tents in orange sukkot in shelters, temporary shelters, when we dwelt in the wilderness. Now, first of all, the rest of the time, in the books, in the book of, of the 40 years of wandering, it doesn't say we dwelt in sukkot. It says we dwelt in tents. Oh. So even this is an odd, an odd juxtaposition. Um, and, uh, furthermore, it's like Passover and Shavuot mark specific moments in our sacred history and yet dwelling in Sukkot while we're traveling through the wilderness, that's a 40 year process. And this is the only time in the entire Torah where Sukkot is identified with us dwelling in, uh, Shelters while we travel through the wilderness. So many commentators find this to be an odd uh, insertion, right? It's it's just it's it it doesn't quite flow. So I wanted to talk a little about that with you. Let's we can take the text down and uh, so we can see more of each other again. Thanks so much, Gwen. Great, okay. So, I wanna thank Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. This is his weekly teaching. Some of you may have read this already this week. He did a beautiful job and I figured, okay, this is worth sharing because he addresses this question. He says, um, How are we to understand the fact that Sukkot, of all festivals, is called Zman Simchatenu, the festival of our joy? Wouldn't it have made more sense to call Pesach, the birthday of our freedom, the festival of the joy, or maybe Shavuot, when we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, the festival of joy? But why give that title to a festival that, suppo- that commemorates our 40 years of living in temporary shelters while we journeyed around the wilderness? Why should we feel joy from that commemoration? That's his question. I thought it was well phrased. And besides which he says, what was the miracle? Pesach and Shavuot recall miracles, but traveling through the wilderness with intemporary shelters, what's so special and miraculous about that? That's how you get through the wilderness. You have to be able to pack up and go to your next campsite. So what's the big deal? What's so special about that experience? And uh, I love the way he phrased the question. Because he's not just the first one to realize that, as we always find out when we're studying Torah. There is a famous debate between, "Ah, it's not a debate, just you know, I think it's this, I think it's this, this. Um, Rabbi Ishmael. And Rabbi Akiva, talking in in the Talmud about so what's going on? What's the miracle? They're living in shelters. New, no, you know, what's the miracle? Rabbi Akiva says that the sukkah, the shelter that God is that that the Torah is talking about here, is not the physical shelters. The physical shelters are symbolic. Um, What the shelter is, is the Sukkot Shalom, the clouds of glory, the Ananei Kavod, that sheltered the Israelites in all their years of wandering. Do you remember that from the Torah, how it says the cloud would cover them by day, and then at night it was a pillar of fire that gave them light, heat and warmth and light at night and protected them? So Rabbi Ishmael says, it must be talking about the miracle of God's shelter. Um, and that becomes understood as, the that is, that is the main accepted understanding of what this is about, because there's a verse in Isaiah that Rabbi Ishmael is using. And that's, by the way, you know, that's how you do this game. You have to find another verse in, in Torah somewhere that's going to support or Inspire your interpretation. Isaiah says, In the time to come, when we've been restored to our home, then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over all those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory, the kavod will be a canopy and it will be a sukkah for shade from heat by day and from the storm and rain by night. So Isaiah is imagining a day, a day of a a utopian perfect future when all is well and uh, uses the word sukkah and uses the word cloud. And so Ishmael says, I got it. That's how we have to understand this verse. Okay, that's pretty clear. Um, That's a miracle, the divine protection. Um, But Rabbi Akiva says, um, I got to find the quote. Um, Basically, I don't see the, I don't have the exact quote here. Rabbi Akiva says, no, we're remembering a sukkah. It's just the, it's like, um, uh, what's what's the famous Freudian joke? A what is a what? Sometimes a cigar is a cigar. You know, it's a cigar. It's a sukkah. And then um, that's what we're remembering. And then R- Rabbi Sachs has to explain, so what is the miracle then? If from Akiva's perspective, we get the miracle from Ishmael's perspective. What is it from Akiva's perspective? Um, Here's what Rabbi Sech says. If If it represents nothing other than a sukkah itself, then it celebrates the human miracle of dwelling in the sukkot and wandering in the wilderness. And what then is the human miracle? The Israelites may have complained and rebelled, but they followed God. They kept going like Abraham and Sarah. They were ready to journey into the unknown. That's the human miracle was their willingness to leave the fortified cities of Egypt behind and dwell in the fragility of temporary shelter. Literally and figuratively the walled cities, that they, the garrison cities that the children of Israel built for Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. They didn't build the pyramids by the way, urban legend, but they um, built these fortified cities, these garrison cities where they were safe and where they were enslaved. Hey, let me read what Pauline's comment is. There's a magnificent teaching of the Spot Emmet of how we need the Sukkah to come down back to earth after our rebirth. We need to put the stakes in the ground after being in and with the Holy of Holies. Yes, that's why at the end of Yom Kippur, we follow this tradition of pounding the first sukkah stake in, so that we're coming back to earth, thank you. Uh, And Anne says, maybe there was a period of time they remained in one place long enough to build huts. Well, it's true, they stayed, it seems they stayed in some places for years during those 40 years of wandering, but the essence of the story which is repeated multiple times is that when they the divine cloud of, pre, of protection lifted they had to break camp and in exodus chapter 16 it says whether it was a month a year a week a day so they didn't get to decide that now we're settling down because they're, they're the in other words they couldn't pretend to plan the future um, and uh, so here's, here's uh, Rabbi Sachs's very felicitous phrase. If we understand this is the miracle, then we can infer a deep truth about faith itself. Faith is not certainty. Faith is the courage to live with uncertainty. I'll just say that again. Faith is not certainty. Faith is the courage to live with uncertainty. Then he says, almost every phrase of the ex- phase of the exodus was fraught with difficulties, real or imagined. That is what makes the Torah so powerful. It does not pretend that life is any easier than it is. The road is not straight and the journey is long. Unexpected things happen crises suddenly appear. It becomes important to embed in a people's memory, in our memory, the knowledge that we can handle the unknown, that God is with us, giving us the courage we need. You know why he wrote this right now. I mean, that's why I liked it so much. Um, Ah, let me see what Roberta said. Could I speak a bit more about mold, the form, no you went moed right the form used in the hebrew and fixed time where's that translation from fox calls it appointed time uh moed ending with a vav i'm not sure where you mean um but i was talking uh, earlier in the class that mo uh, with a yod mo day uh the set times of the yud is a uh, the yod is um mm, makes it a possessive, day, the set times of. And yes, moed means a, a set gathering time, an appointed time, and it's a beautiful word. But I, you can listen to this again, and you'll hear what I said earlier. I hope I addressed that earlier. Oh, let me read a quote from Martin Buber that's also dear to me that says the same thing. I've read it many times, real faith does not mean professing what we hold true in a ready-made formula. It means holding ourselves open to the unconditional mystery which we encounter in every sphere of our life and which cannot be comprised in any formula. It means that from the very roots of our being, we should always be prepared to live with this mystery as one being lives with another. Real faith means the ability to endure life in the face of this mystery. Each Sukkot. Oh, bye Ellen. His, her son just came for a visit, that's lovely. I've known Mark for a long time. I was saying at the, when we were chatting at the beginning of class, Ellen's in Philly that I met Mark playing basketball when he was 21 years old, uh, and now he's 52, he said. He was some basketball player. My goodness. Okay, here's what he said. Each Sukkot, it is as if God were reminding us, don't think you need solid walls to make yourself feel safe. I led your ancestors through the desert so that they would never forget the journey they had to make and the obstacles they had to overcome to get to this land. As it says in the, what we just read, I made the Israelites live in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. In those booths, fragile and open to the elements, the Israelites learned the courage to live with uncertainty. So the sukkah becomes a symbol of that because it has flimsy walls. It has a permeable roof, which you're supposed to be able to see the stars. And yet at the same time, you're sitting with your feet on the ground. And your job is to experience the goodness and joy of being alive that is not contingent on outcomes. And we've talked about this a lot. Um, there is a joy that is contingent on a certain outcome. When we reach our, when we set a goal and achieve it, or when something wonderful happens to us, we rejoice. That's not bad. That's good. But if our whole orientation towards feeling joy or sorrow is based on outcomes when in fact this virus has shown us we're not in charge of any outcome. If we had goals that just got dashed right now and our entire sense of well-being was attached to that goal, it could crush us. It could shatter us. So we have to nurture a different element and um, quality of joy. And that is the joy of dwelling in the sukkah right now. It's a joy that's not contingent on the future. It's a joy that's always present when we remember, uh, Ellen's cat is on her table. So Ellen went away, but her cat's listening. Okay. It's a joy that we have to, it's, it's a spiritual quality that the more we can nurture, I'm telling you, the happier we can be despite external circumstances. Because when we sit in our sukkah and experience the joy, the simple joy, of being alive today. We gain strength. It gives me courage to know that that kind of joy is waiting for me whenever I seek to encounter it. The more I do that, the stronger my spiritual life gets. That is my spiritual life being that which is not attached to physical or temporal outcomes. It can give you equanimity. And in this sense, Rabbi Ishmael's interpretation and Rabbi Akiva's interpretation merge because the miracle is our ability to perceive the cloud of glory, right? Maybe the cloud of glory is always there. Maybe this is in effect a relationship that we have to nurture? How do we become aware of the cloud of glory that's sheltering us, guiding us, filling us up with the kind of joy in being alive that cannot be bought or sold and is not contingent on what happens in our outsides? Now that doesn't mean the storms of life aren't going to shake us. We don't know what's going to make us crash. Everyone's got different. Everyone's got different chinks in their, in their um, ability to navigate life. We don't know what's going to bring us down. But if we remember this, then when we are brought down, we can find ourselves regrouping into not the future, but into the present. That would be the miracle of faith that is being celebrated in this strange notion that we're traveling in Sukkot and therefore we're supposed to feel joy. So here are the words of um, Jonathan Sachs again repeating what I've been saying in my own words. That is what Sukkot is about. It is a story about uncertainty. It tells us that we can know everything else, but we will never know what tomorrow will bring. Time is a journey across a wilderness. On Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we pray to be written into the Book of Life. On Sukkot, we rejoice because we believe we have received a positive answer to our prayer. But then as we turn to face the coming year, we acknowledge at the outset that life is fragile, vulnerable in a dozen different ways. The sukkah symbolizes living with unpredictability. Sukkot is the festival of radical uncertainty. But it places it within the framework of a narrative and tells us that though we journey through a wilderness, we will reach our destination. If we see life through the eyes of faith, we will know we are surrounded by clouds of glory. And amid uncertainty, we will find ourselves able to rejoice. Exposure of the sukkah is the way of taming our fear of the unknown, it says, our fear of the unknown, it says, We have been here before. And that is one of the beautiful things about, about being Jewish and about being human, is that the longer we're alive, we say, oh, we've been on this place before of radical uncertainty and we can continue. And I wanna add one more insight I had reading his words which is that on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we pray to be written in the book of life. And of course, on one level, yes, just plain, yes, I want to be alive till next Rosh Hashanah. But on another level, maybe this, this other celebration of being alive is what we then get to have on Sukkot, which is that we are in the book of life. We're not waiting desperately to know but having cleansed ourselves of expectation on Yom Kippur, now in Sukkot, we get the full reward that we are in the book of life right now. No matter what is happening, where the cloud's leading us, how, un- how uncertain our shelter is, we are still in the book of life fully right now that's a reason, not just a reason to rejoice, that is the source of joy. So I want to thank Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs for tuning me into that beautiful teaching from the Parsha today. (sighs) Let me read what Gail said. Oh, first what Blaze said. Oh, Enid, I'm going up and up Doesn't Abraham live in an open structure to welcome strangers? That's right, Abraham's tent traditionally is open in all directions to welcome strangers. And we're supposed to live in a similar state of being at Sukkot because we welcome strangers into the Sukkah, anyone, our guests. Blaise said, how relevant for this time when we need courage, faith more than ever, uncertainty and caps. Life itself has flimsy walls, and yet we choose it over and over and over. Well said. What an expansive message, Blaise. Thank you. And Gail wrote, and the thrust of this Parsha is also pointing at the endless acts of creation, that is, harvests, of yod heh along with the uncertainty we face. Right, we're celebrating the bounty that the earth gives us. And Shabbat is also described in terms of the seven days of creation. The ongoing presence of yod heh vav with us through the ongoing acts of creation. Because Sukkot, we are sitting there in the bounty of creation. The miracles of each hour, as the Amida says. Thank you, Gail. And Pauline Tamari says, so the joy of Sukkot is always available, there for us to bring back, there when we need it, to rejoice. Well said. And Deborah says, an amazingly profound and helpful teaching. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Getting to teach you is my opportunity to dive deep into this. So thank you, thank you, thank you.